Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just before we start today's show, I should tell you about our new sponsor. It's going to be our sponsor for the next all couple of months here on Mid-Atlantic. It's Flick. And what Flick do is they have an app and it allows you, the listener, to chat with other listeners of this podcast. Quite simply, to go and download this app to your smartphone, go onto the show notes of this episode, you'll see a link, click on that link, it will then download an app to your phone, which then connects you to the world of mid-Atlantic listeners. Now, not only can you chat, create your own topics, and respond to uh, people's comments about US and UK politics, we can also listen to the show. So it basically acts as an, an app for the podcast. So go on to the show notes, download the Flick app and enjoy. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm happy to say that I've eaten two donuts for breakfast today, and I'm Royfield Brown, who happens to be in Oakland. Today I'm joined by author, U.S. constitutional professor and politics, big brain, <laughs> Corey Brett Schneider, in the tri-state area. Are you actually I'm in, in New, New York? York? Yeah, on you the are, Upper West Side. You? Oh, right. Up, upper, low, east, west side. Yeah. Well done. And by the journalist lefty friend of the theatre and pundit Emma Burnell, who's in London. Hello. Say hello, folks. Hiya. Oh, hello. you preempted uh, my little say hello, folks, there, Emma. Sorry. Wait for your turn, Mrs. <laughs> Wait for your turn. In a week that has seen Joe Johnson publicly state that he doesn't trust his brother Boris, we ask, is UK politics more exciting than sex and more unpredictable 
than Donald Trump's Twitter stream. It's certainly more unpredictable than sex. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson lost a crucial Brexit vote Tuesday. The Labour Party won control of Parliament as they moved to block the UK's departure from the European Union without a deal. The showdown between the parties is raising concerns that a snap general election could be in the nation's future. Speeding to crisis or opportunity, Boris Johnson revving through Whitehall to face the first votes in Parliament as Prime Minister. The first genuine test of authority. Statement, the Prime Minister. Mocked within moments of getting on his feet. This country still stands then as now. For democracy, for the rule of law. Then less than two minutes in, watch this. The three MPs walking through the chamber are two Lib Dems flanking a Conservative, Philip Lee who turns right with them to take a new seat alongside that rival party. A defection that takes away Boris Johnson's majority altogether. When you've got an administration that seems hell-bent on on delivering a no-deal Brexit, that isn't in the best interest of my constituents. It's not in the best interest of the businesses in my constituency. And I'm elected by Bracknell constituents to, to represent their best interests. With officially now no majority and bristling Tory rebels who may be enjoying the moment with familiar faces. Like his predecessor, Mr Johnson may not be able to hold off enemies on the Tory benches behind him. He isn't winning friends in Europe. He's losing friends at home. His is a government with no mandate, no morals, and as of today, no majority. Careful plans for beating the government tonight. Emma, as we kind of said off mic, this is basically the Emma, please explain to everybody what has happened in the last week. We we knew it was going to be a tumultuous week in British politics, and it's proven to be thus. I'm going to fire off uh, the first statement, which is MPs backed a bill that aimed at blocking a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October. That happened on Monday. Opposition MPs and Rory Tory rebel, sorry, passed the bill by 327 votes to 299. So that means that 21 Tory MPs voted against that bill, voted for that bill, sorry, against the government. What exactly did that mean and what was the immediate fallout? Okay, so more often than not, when you vote against the government, even when it's on what's called a three line whip, so there are three different levels of how expected you are to both turn up and vote with the government. One line whip, just kind of, ah, oh, it'd be kind of nice if you turned up, but we don't really care. Two line whip, you really ought to be there, guys. <laughs> Three line whip, you're not there, there will be consequences. Now, the consequences are not always as dramatic as what's happened this week, which is that all 21 of those MPs, including eight former um, cabinet ministers and the grandson of Winston <laughs> Churchill... I love the fact that he's always referred to as that. Well, yeah, it's he's kind of what just... he is, isn't he, really? <laughs> <laughs> and Boris's brother, I forget. Is he another one? Uh, no, <laughs> Boris's brother was oh, later. Okay. Um, so yeah. he didn't no, rebel in that way, but he has now since right. um, resigned under his own steam. So they all mm-hmm. lost the whip. And what that means is they are no longer able to call themselves Conservative MPs. They will not be able to stand again for the Conservative Party. Um, in whenever the next general election happens and they are not whipped by anybody. <laughs> so they are now independent MPs. 
now, now, I saw your face there, Corey, and I know that the British Parliament has a certain yeah. reputation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think we both know that a parliamentary whip and what you were thinking about is quite, quite different, although we do understand that a former <laughs> Tory Chancellor, who is now a peer in the House of Lords, did once rent a flat to a woman called Miss Yeah, Whitlash. I feel like I've read a lot of stories in the British tabloids about different kinds of whims <laughs> in the Conservative Party. The I'm repression sure you have. <laughs> now, the MP that uh, walked across, I, ha- I have actually a, a couple questions. The first is, how does the MP okay. who left the party, where did that fit in when the MP left the party and joined the Lib Dems? Okay, so he he jumped before he was pushed. And what he did was cross the floor. So literally, as Boris Johnson stood up to make his um, speech responding to the EU, so I think it was possibly his first speech in Parliament as Prime Minister, Dr. Philip Lee, who was a Conservative backbencher, stood up and very dramatically walked across to the opposition benches and sat with the Liberal Democrats. And a simultaneously a statement was released in his name saying, I'm now a Liberal Democrat and I've taken the Liberal Democrat whip. Mm. But this um, was a, just a Joe dramatic Jones. way of kind of preempting what was It was a very dramatic way. But what was most dramatic was because the PM has such a small, had such a small majority that even before he took the whip away from his, those 21 MPs, that lost him his majority in Parliament. Right, so that was yeah, it. Because it was one going over of, to the other side yeah. meant that they lost one, the other side gained one, and that was it. So where it. do all of these people go? Mm-hmm. Do they pick a party, or do they stay seated with... Yeah, he, well, the 21. Yeah. They are making various different decisions, mm. uh, I imagine. Some might eventually join the Liberal Democrats, um, although there has been quite a lot of consternation from the Liberal Democrat membership about Philip Lee, the MP that we were just talking mm. about, because he's not very, not very good on LGBT rights. Uh, well, and haven't, haven't the Lib Dems got a history of that with Tim Farron? He was hardly. Well, indeed. Uh, I think Tim Farron was supposed to be you know, this far and no further. One of the co-chairs of LGBT Lib Dems resigned from the party completely over Philip Lee being allowed to join. So that there is a lot of consternation that just because somebody's anti-Brexit doesn't make them a Liberal Democrat. So mm. it may be more complicated than just expecting to be um, welcomed into the party with open arms. There is the Change UK group of independents, whatever they're called this week, um, who are the guys who broke away um i think 10 of them from the labor party three of them from the lib dems they have since become considerably smaller no from the conservative from the conservative sorry yes i apologize they have now become much smaller because some of them have joined the liberal democrats two of whom this week in luciana berger and angela smith Mm -hmm. um mana has joined the lib dems who was previously part of that group but some of them have remained. So some of them may choose to sit with them. I think most of them, uh, an awful lot of them, are coming to the end of their careers. They won't go into run again in any um, upcoming election. And they'll just sit out their time as independents. Now, none of this would matter, be, I guess, if we were to go right to an election. But I take it that the whole reason why this you know, is a kind of crisis is that elections, you said last time, the prime minister can't just call them. You need basically the opposition to call it. So they it might be to their advantage, right, to keep this parliament for some time and to well, wreak havoc I if they can that was... with, the, with the Boris Johnson's plans. Well, I presume that was going to be Royfield's next uh, question because that's the next thing that has already right. happened. Mm. 
is that once um, Johnson lost the votes on stopping a no deal, he then declared that Parliament had gone against him and he Parliament was un, unworkable and we had to have uh, an election, called a vote on that and failed to get the two-thirds majority that you need under the legislation we talked about mm-hmm. last time, the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. So he said, I want an election, and everyone else went, no, this isn't the time. It's interesting that when this legislation was first uh, enacted uh, in the last parliament under David Cameron, that expressly what everybody said was, under no circumstance would um, an opposition party, an opposition leader, not ask for an election if one was actually offered. You know, no one foresaw this level of confusion and circumstances whereby opposition parties would be, in effect, offered an election and they say no immediately. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great look normally <laughs> for a leader of the opposition to say, hey, no, I don't really want to take over. Under normal electoral circumstances, that might be considered, and the, the Tories have run very hard on trying to call that chicken, mm. to the extent that they sent around what they were calling fried <laughs> chicken but was actually cheap Tesco rotisserie chicken to the parliamentary lobby, which is the journalists in Parliament. So, Emma, could you explain the the Labour Party's thinking as the reason why they don't want the election, specifically on the date that Boris Johnson uh, wanted to call it, which was, what, the 14th of October? Johnson wanted to call an election just before the Council of Europe meeting, which is on October the 17th. Mm-hmm. At that meeting will be the final negotiation before the 31st of October, which is when, at the moment, the UK is due to crash out of the EU with no deal. It would be the last chance to get a deal of some sort or to decide not to go for a deal at all. Doesn't it also strategically advantage the opposition right now to not call an election because they... You know, the government has a minority. If they were to win an election, you know, in a landslide, well, then they're going to get whatever they want. So now there is power in the hands of the opposition. Or is that overstating the the position that they're in? I mean, mean, it sort of depends. (laughs) Nobody has any power, really. All the opposition parties have to continue to work together, which is not in their nature. In fact, I'm currently writing a piece about exactly that. Um, for Prospect magazine, mm. um, there is long-term animosity between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Long, long has been. Both see the others as quite often... The oldest joke in British politics is there's a Lib Dem and a Tory on a cliff. Who do you push off first? <laughs> and the answer, of course, is always the Tory, business before pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't see these two groups forming some strong coalition. So it's, well, at the moment, they are doing pretty well to form a Remain alliance. Mm. When an election comes, um, it will be harder for them to do that. However, there is only a handful of seats where the two will be really focused on fighting each other. Um, Most of the seats that the Lib Dems will be looking to pick up will be Tory seats. So if they can have some sort of soft power pact where everyone runs a candidate, because that's too hard to get around in terms of the internal constitutions of the parties, mm. but you don't necessarily pour the resources into those seats. You, you target the resources not against each other. 
does to try and maximise a Remain voting parliament to pass legislation to get a second referendum. Mm. And Plaid Cymru did a similar thing at the last by-election, didn't they? They basically yeah. kind of half stood down there. Did they actually yeah. stand down the candidate or did they just say we're not going to try that hard? I can't remember. I can't recall, but they probably have an easier constitutional ability. Basically, the Labour Party, Clause 1 of the Labour Party makes it really, really difficult Mm. for us to do that, unless in very exceptional circumstances. And we also, we've got a whole bunch of candidates already selected in a lot of marginal seats. So you're asking people who've been putting in two, three, four years sometimes to take a hit, and that's really hard to do. Mm. And I think, just quickly, Corey, and I think... For our American listeners, really to understand this is incredibly complex because unlike the US, very obviously we're, we're a multi-party system and you can have uh, marginal seats, uh, Labour Conservative, uh, Lib Dem Conservative. Then in Scotland, it can be much more confusing whereby you have SMP marginal to Labour, uh, SMP to Conservative, vice versa. And then in Wales, you have Plaid Cymru, which is the Welsh party who were stronger in the north and the west of, of Wales. What and is then, that phrase marginal to? What does that mean? It means oh. part of? Ah, a marginal seat is one where it's, uh, it's not a safe seat. So um, the opposition have a good chance of winning it. It was within, say, the margin of error that they could win it. So, yeah, so it would be, you know, in play is what you'd, the expression that you'd use in American politics. Which probably counts up to about a 5,000 majority, but an awful lot of the seats post-2017 are considerably less than a 5,000 majority. Um, Mm. I had a question about, I'm going to ask if, you know, political science is always struggling to show that it's relevant, and, and this year might be the year that it actually can do it. Um, uh, you know what, Corey, let, let me just quickly jump in, because there uh, is another factor in all sure. of this, which is the Brexit party, so Nigel Farage's party, mm-hmm. which is the largest party in terms of the British constituent European MEPs, which have got, gone to Europe, don't have any uh, members of parliament. And there is talk that Farage will have uh, a pact, or at least he's talking about having a pact with Johnson's Conservative Party. Uh, so where there are Labour voting seats, but actually voted to leave. So get, get that right. So these voted for the Labour Party, but in the referendum, in the two, 2016 referendum, that that constituency actually voted to leave, that they want the Tory party to kind of stand aside or not put in that much resources and the Brexit party will go for those seats. So it's incredibly, it could be incredibly confusing and volatile election mm. result because... So- the leave vote is potentially split if Labour comes out as being the Remain party and they're kind of fudging their way to that position. That potentially They're a lot closer now than they were a month exactly, ago. Exactly, exactly. The leave vote is split between the Tories and the Brexit party. So if you have this, whether it's a tacit or implicit or an overt Remain alliance, but that potentially the Tories could actually end up with um, the largest vote share, but with a lot less seats because their vote would be split between themselves and the Brexit party. And that's before you even talk about UKIP, which are a, a diminishing force 
Um, so Nigel Farage is talking about potentially having some kind of pact with the Tory party. Mm. As you were Tory, go on. Corey, um, not a Tory. <laughs> so I wanted to ask a kind of big picture question based on what we've just been saying today and before, which is that, you know, there's something going on here. I mean, there's a obviously a crisis of democracy, a kind of dysfunction that seems epic, basically. And so why is it happening? There's a sort of not just a story, a, a theory in political science that's very common and controversial, but it says it's called cycling. Have either of you ever heard of this idea that mm. basically democracy is incoherent is the idea because you get these so-called cycles. And what happens in cycling is if you have three proposals, A prefers, uh, sorry, a, a, a majority prefer A to B and a majority prefer B to C and also a majority prefer C to A. And so you basically will never get a result because every time you put, depends how you ask the question, but you're going to just... There's a kind of incoherence or another way to talk about it is it's an application of the idea of impossibility that democracy is impossible. Now, what's controversial about it is there's a famous book by a political scientist called Jerry Mackey who says this has never happened. And so every supposed instance of cycling in American politics that people have put forth, he tries to show it's never happened. But to me, what's interesting about what's happening now is it does seem to be actually just this instance of I don't know, possibly cycling or incoherence because you have these three proposals. You have deal, no deal, and then you have negotiated deal. And each of those seems to, you know, I don't know, not fail to, to have any majority support. And there's preference for the another over it. And so is that what's going on? And if so, like, why is that this the first instance of this kind of cycling? Maybe one theory that I wanted to ask you about, Emma, is about this law that's happened that keeps the prime minister from calling an election when things are going south. And so it might have happened before, but this weird law is what's sort of prompted mm. this crisis. So, A, does this seem like that theory could work here, even though it you know, is seen as controversial? And B, before, is it because of this? Before you jump in, Emma, and, and give um, a somewhat more detailed answer, um, I'll quickly say this, that in terms of cycling, it's funny enough, I received a tweet from Misha Lebonich, Vich, mm. um, who's going to come on and do a 10 American presidents and actually a special uh, mid-Atlantic, who has broken down um, the American political history since uh, 1789. That's when uh, Washington was elected, wasn't it? Uh, and basically he said it, it, there are, this cycling does go in 20-year periods. And he mm. is, he's done all the data on this, and it's, it makes for compelling um, reading. So he says that, like, Nixon is a precursor, basically, to, to, to the Reagan era, and then, then he steps through and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, what, whatever. Mm. So he says that this, this is a thing, and he's actually done the empirical uh, kind of evidence and data on it, whatever. And then quickly what I'll say about UK uh, politics, as, as somewhat of a student of history as opposed to a political scientist and, and a journalist the way that Emma is, is that 1945, you fundamentally had a two-party system in, in the United Kingdom. It was fundamentally just the Labour Party and the Tory Party. Uh, the, the Liberal Party as, which was, uh, as such had been massively reduced from before the war and then comes, comes out in that 1945 election being a, totally like a, a minuscule party thing of one or two MPs. The history 
the post-war history of politics in the UK is that the two-party system has been slowly being eroded, whether it's the Scottish nationalists in in Scotland who had their breakthrough in 1967, they have um, their first MP, uh, Plaid Cymru in Wales, etc. But then slowly but surely, the centre ground of the, where the Liberal Party uh, kind of stood slowly, very slowly, and uh, get stronger. And just to go back to uh, the point about Tim Farron and uh, is it Lee Phillips? Uh, Philip Lee, sorry. Philip, Philip Lee. Lee, sorry. Um, being um, anti-LGBTQ is that David Steele was the leader of the Liberal Party in the 1970s and, and 80s, actually proposed the legislation uh, to uh, decriminalise uh, gay sex in, in the late 1960s. So the Liberal Party has somewhat of a proud... <laughs> yeah, but he was pretty different on abortion. <laughs> he, he was different on abortion. But the Liberal Party... Not a Liberal there, The man. <laughs> Liberal Party can claim to be, um, you know, have, have this kind of somewhat tolerant history when it comes at least to that section of social liberalism. Uh, and then you have Jeremy Thorpe and then what went on in the 1970s. But then that's another thing. This is a brilliant... And if you're, just as an aside, if you are interested in Jeremy Thorpe, there was a recent BBC drama yes. called A Very British Scandal. And there's an excellent episode of my other podcast, The Zeitgeist <laughs> Tapes, where we discuss it. So do check I, that I, out. I really recommend any American just to see the somewhat farcical nature of and this person was the leader of his political party in the United States, Jeremy Thorpe and what he tried to do to cover up his gay affair um, shows you the times that were then but then also it's this and Hugh Grant plays Jeremy Thorpe and it's a brilliant performance anyway um, all the, in the 1980s there is this kind of almost like a breakthrough moment whereby a rump of Labour MPs leave the Labour Party, so they're to the right of the Labour Party, and leave to form a party called the SDP. They say the, the Labour Party is becoming too left-wing. This is the time of Thatcher and, and um, Thatcherite politics, and arguably the centre ground of British politics moves rightwards, and they moved to leave the Labour Party, David Owen, Shirley Williams, Roy Jenkins... And I forget the other the other dude. The other one yeah. that no one can remember their name. <laughs> it's fundamentally, they're, they're called the Gang of Four. They, they formed the SDP. The, Bill, Bill Rogers, Rogers is well the other done. one. They then join the SDP, has a pact with, with the Liberal Party. Then they join the Liberal Party, hence Liberal Democrats. It's a, uh, it's a co-joining of, of the two names. Uh, there was a point, uh, what, 20, the 2010 election... Uh, we are, we really do move into a multi-party system of politics. So you have this slow erosion from 1945 into 2010. I think the Lib Dems had, what, 50 MPs? It was round about that figure. Yeah. Uh, I think 58. Yeah, it, was, it was a large figure. Like the Liberal Party had never had so many MPs since the 1920s. And, and then you have the Scottish Nationalists doing really well in Scotland. Plaid Cymru's never been as strong in Wales. So you have this slow erosion. So this isn't just, this hasn't just happened in terms of multi-party politics. It's been happening for a long time. However, at the same point as things have come to a head because of our first-past-the-post system, which is very similar in, in, in the States, very obviously, you know, you get the most amount of votes 
for um, a specific uh, Congress era and you just win, full stop. You have this crisis of political alignment, which is happening all throughout the developed Western world, where people are coming much less tribal. So you can have Labour voting areas who are notionally left of centre, let's say Stoke, Barnsley, uh, these are working class, somewhat economically disadvantaged areas, but actually, in many ways, are socially conservative. And it's exactly the same as your West Virginia's bits of Tennessee, you know, the Appalachian kind of uh, spine that runs down the eastern seaboard. It's exactly that same, same demographic. And people are becoming much less tribal. So politics is becoming much more fluid. And then... To add to the perfect storm of this, say, and then, then it's over to you, Emma, to do the actual political science and the, the detail on this, is that you have a situation whereby you have um, a vote which is ultimately to the core of your politics. Are you embracing an open, i.e. do you want to remain, or do you believe that others are different? It's as fundamental as that. So you're having a, a, a collapse of uh, party discipline on MPs who are wrestling with this very core belief that I want to be more open, I need to protect. It's as, it's as core a, a, as that. So that's where I then bow out of this. Emma, over to you. <laughs> Give him a proper answer. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's all definitely part of the factors I think fundamentally what we're wrestling with here, for which there is no right answer, is two very different visions of democracy. So we have parliamentary democracy in which MPs are not delegates. They are there to make their own considered judgment on issues. Um, and they spend time examining issues and carefully scrutinising and going through legislation with a fine-tooth comb in order to make the considered judgment that their constituents don't have time to do because it's not their job to go through things in that mm. level of detail. That is run up fundamentally against the direct democracy of the, uh, yeah, of, of the referendum and the binary choice, do we stay or do we go? And within that binary choice, there are so many different flavours of going... Mm that it's very, very complicated to say what that referendum actually means. But over the three years since that vote happened, the interpretation of it has swung quite hard into a very hard um, leave. Now, Theresa May's deal is what was once known as a hard Brexit. And this is what people are forgetting. You know, hard Brexit didn't used to mean no deal Brexit. It used to be the case that hard Brexit was anything that took us out of the customs union and the single market. And a soft Brexit would kept us in single market or the customs union or both. Now a hard Brexit, and the only thing that some people will accept as a real Brexit, is a Brexit with absolutely no deal at all. Mm -hmm. And as a result... That has now hardened, yeah. What was a very, very close vote? 48-52. That is a, that is about as close a vote as you can get, really. But instead of going, well, obviously the country sits along a spectrum, um, with the vote being fairly close in the middle, we should probably have a Brexit that is a soft Brexit, 
which will least please most people or most please least people or whatever. It's something where it it reflects the closeness of the vote by not going to the extreme ends of fully remaining or leaving with with no Mm. deal. What instead has happened is that the people who probably three years ago would have gone, okay, a soft Brexit, I'll, I'll take that if I have to, have been completely sidelined and ignored so that as soon as Theresa May laid out her red lines at the um, Customs House speech, which she did very soon after taking, um, taking power, she then laid out what was quite a hard Brexit and she would brook no opposition to that from the Remainers. She would not go anywhere closer to the middle of what Brexit was supposed to be mm. than her very hard lines, which at that point, as again I point out, were considered to be a hard Brexit. Mm. Now, during that time, what happened, what was always going to happen, because people are idiots and they don't understand how politics work, including most politicians, certainly Theresa May, is that the people who were her harder Brexiteers felt that they could pull her ever further towards a harder and harder and harder and harder Brexit until they wound themselves up to the point that no deal was the only possible acceptable option and therefore refused to accept her option. Meanwhile, she'd done no work to bring Remainers on side and Remainers just moved harder and harder. Was it, if you're not going to listen to us at all and your Brexit's going to get harder and harder, we're going to move away from being willing to support a soft Brexit to we will only accept a second referendum. So it's partly and so a, now both a, yeah. sides are as far apart as it's humanly possible mm. to be, with no space to negotiate in the middle. No, sorry about that. That is a that's a, an excellent uh, analysis and, and a really good reminder that in that 2016 referendum, no lever said we'd leave the customs union and the single market. None of them did. Well, do you know what the, the most Googled phrase after on the 24th of June 2016 is, what is the EU? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's sort of the worst combo, it sounds like, of plebiscitory democracy yeah. and, and parliamentary. I mean, parliamentary, yeah. in what you said, I took you know the idea, which I completely agree with, that it's about knowledge and the obligation to know. It's also about the obligation to deliberate yeah. and reach reasonable views together (laughs) this is about rigidity everything but it i have some breaking news mps have just voted that the government have to release all the documents about planning for a no deal brexit Mm. that they've been trying to keep secret and all the documents about planning to pro-reg parliament so here are all the here's the advantage i guess of the current situation right you can exactly things like that parliament has completely taken control and I, I presume you've both heard today that the Speaker has decided yeah, to mm-hmm. retire on the 31st of October. What was that about? Okay, he just yeah, got tired of it? Can give yeah. us that sp- why is the 31st of October significant uh, for him actually to leave? Well, the 31st of October is the day that we are due to crash out mm. without a deal. Mm. It may well be that if we get into an election campaign and then there is a new um, parliament that is more favourable to Boris Johnson, he has a majority then to put in a more favourable spe- speaker, speaker will less likely to take the side of parliament against the government. Burko was pushed into this because over the weekend there was a lot of briefing by the Conservative Party that they were going to run a Tory candidate against him, even though he was, before he became speaker, a Tory MP. Once you become speaker, you no longer take any whip and you don't vote in parliament, but you also, the, the convention is that nobody runs against you so that the speaker can have continuity. 
The Tories were going to break that convention, as they are breaking so many conventions at the moment. The word conservative has come to mean absolutely nothing. By stepping down at that date, it means that he will be replaced by a speaker elected by this parliament. This parliament of 21 independent ex-Tories <laughs> who are quite happy to give Boris Johnson a kicking. This Tory of a, you know, opposition parties quite happy to give Boris Johnson a kicking. So they will now elect someone who will be a parliamentarian speaker mm. rather than a government-friendly speaker. I did see his um, speech and it was noticeable that it was the opposition benches that all stood up to applaud him at, at the end. Which, I mean, I mean, John Burke has been on a long and weird journey. Mm-hmm. When John Burko was first elected and was first around in the early 80s, he was a really right-wing Tory. He was a member of what was called the Monday Club, which was basically a fascist organisation. Um, um, you know, oh, come on. No, no, really. The, do you know about the Monday Club? Go on, tell me about the Monday Club. The Monday Club, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not using that word lightly. Mm. He was an extreme right-winger in favour of apartheid genuinely a racist he's gone an incredible journey to become what he is now which is a very liberal conservative google the monday club i'm not kidding around with that word they were fascists can i ask a um, basic question about how this works so there's uh, a you know a minority government and you have a majority passing bills from the lib dems and the labor and and these other parties is there any possibility within the current distribution of seats in parliament of Another coalition taking power? I mean, could that happen? That Labour and there the Lib Dems? There would have and... to be a vote of no confidence in the government. Mm-hmm. The opposition would then have 14 days. The, La- the Labour Party would have 14 days to see if they could get a majority behind them mm. under the Fixed Term Parliament Act. The complication is that the Lib Dems don't necessarily want to be seen to be supporting Corbyn. They feel that when they're going up against Tories in whenever a general election happens, that that would be unhelpful to them. But do they think they can win a majority by themselves, the Lib Dems? I mean, why would no. they not just go for the... They think they could get more seats and more power? I mean, they think, they'll, they think they will get more seats and they may well end up holding a balance of power. I mean, even in their wildest dreams, and they did very well in the recent European mm. elections, they're not expecting to get a majority. The first-past-the-post system mitigates against third parties. They would have mm. to have a vote share so massive for them to have any kind of majority. But as Emma says, for them to have some... And it would have to be distributed in such a way that it just isn't. At so the shouldn't they right now, if they're doing what they should do, be trying to make a coalition with Labour? No, because what they want to do is take those Tory seats first and then do the balance of power after any election because we will be having an election mm. that's going to happen it's just going to happen after we don't get a no deal brexit right. basically yeah and that is that that's for sure that's that's what's happening i mean it's not set in stone mm. in law but yeah everyone knows it mm. we're probably looking at a november december or january mm. election so what's going to happen no deal brexit you're not going to have food there and i was at a conference in oxford i took the channel to paris and i was told you know the plan right now is that this closes and <laughs> yeah that's amazing. We they're, they're, we may not have food supplies. We may oh. not have drug supplies. Mm. If you are on um, certain chemotherapy, mm. you won't get. Um, we can't get radio isotopes. Um, Emma, because we you haven't know got it's all Project Fear. Come on now, Emma. It may well be Project Fear, Royfield, but I've got a cupboard full of food that's betting it ain't. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
It's turned me into a bloody survivalist. Royfell, do you think that's not what's going to happen? <laughs> oh, no, no, I said that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. That is no. the uh, lever answer to people saying that we need to stockpile X and no. Y and Z. Uh, but there are legitimate concerns that just-in-time goods, drugs, actually will be disrupted because uh, we'll need to set up some form of tariff and to check things coming in and out of the country. And we just don't have that infrastructure right now. We don't We don't have it at all. The government have um, uh, a document called Yellowhammer, which basically details all of the problems that will be if we, if we crash out. And that's what Parliament have just voted to release publicly. Exactly. And, and it's supposed to make for somewhat harrowing reading. The... People who, who want to leave, who want to have a hard Brexit, gloss over the short-term disruption. They, they, you know, they're always talking at best about, you know, we can get all these trade deals. And trade deals take years to negotiate. Mm. But we'll have an immediate problem where we don't have any kind of reciprocal arrangement with France. Germany, Holland, Belgium, people who we trade with on a, on a tariff-free basis. And all of a sudden, we're going to put tariffs in that all the experts say there will be backlogs of trucks and lorries trying to distribute goods either side of the, of, of the channel. Because overnight, we're going to need to check them. Overnight. There is no ramping up period. One of Theresa May's elements of her withdrawal agreement was we'd have a transition period of a couple of years for us to put these various mechanisms in place. It's one of the complacencies of relative affluence, no disruptions, no severe economic disruptions like the depression or war is the reasons why many people just do not believe there will be severe consequences because they've never had anything like this before in their lives. No, this is not going to be the same as the German Luftwaffe dropping bombs on London. Do not get me wrong. But if you are, I think it was leukemia sufferers, like Mm. their drugs are in very short supply, just in time need. A two or three day delay means that you're going to struggle to get those drugs. And all of our fresh produce that comes through is in a just-in-time basis. So you're going to have massive delays and, and problems and shortages. And these are being glossed over by levers all the time. And you're talking about a country where there were, and I'm not even kidding, there were practically riots. People were calling 999 our equivalent of 911 when KFC ran out of chicken. <laughs> How do you think we're going to deal with the fact that we've got no bread? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And that's not even their cheap rotisserie chicken you were talking about before. <laughs> no, this is proper, proper fried chicken. I think, you know, if, if we have... A, do we have some American listeners to the show? But you, we have some, right? Yeah, well, yeah, we like there's about 45%. So, yeah, there's, oh, there's a good, a good few thousand. Well, we should have 4852. That would be I mean, I think, you know, we're getting some of the, the news. And, you know, it's an interesting issue, but the, the sort of drastic consequences. Mm. I haven't seen reported that widely in the media that this could be... You know, true but, disaster. But, but there's the another problem, which again we're suffering all throughout the Western world, is our lack of confidence and belief in experts. Mm-hmm. You're an expert. What does that actually mean? If you go back and listen to Mark Carney, who is the governor of the Bank of England, who's actually Canadian, or the the head of the TUC, that's the Trades Union Congress, or the CBI, which is the Confederation of British in- Industry, through to 
medical experts that, that buy uh, medical goods for the NHS, the National Health Service, you know, that in the UK. You go through every last one of them, say we cannot have a no-deal Brexit because it will deliver to the British economy a sizable economic shock and there will be logistical problems. You, you, can, you will struggle to find an expert in his field, who's a bona fide expert, they've done the time in that industry, that will say that a no-deal Brexit is good. And and actually, one of the problems uh, that we had during the referendum debate was there's such an asymmetry. All experts were saying we need to remain in the European Union. Here are the, the reasons why I'm an expert in X. And because there's such an asymmetry, I think it was like... Uh, and I forget exactly the percentage, but just go with me on this, that in terms of experts, I'm doing air quotes now, there was something like 90% of experts believe that we should remain in the European Union. So what the BBC then struggled to do is to find experts to say, that would, you know, to counterbalance that. What they ended up doing was recycling the one or two economists who were outliers, and everybody said that there were, who believed that we'd be better off outside to, to have a balanced debate. But actually, if you analysed it, the, the expert advice far outweighed, in terms of sheer weight of numbers, people who said that actually we can take this risk and we can actually leave. So you have a media trying to appear to be balanced because they couldn't find enough people um, who were experts to say that we should actually leave. And then you have this corrosive malaise that we have, in, I think, in all Western democracies where we are turning our nose away from experts. We're saying, my lived experience is this, and that is more valid than you who've studied five years, 10 years, 15 years in this field, telling me something to the contrary. And we have it with anti-vaxxers. We have it in a whole range of, of issues. It's just that we have this perfect storm with people not wanting to hear or believe things which are contrary to what they believe. Uh, I just read a study that was done here about percentage of Americans that want to quote-unquote burn it down, you know, that mm. sort of attitude. Yeah. And it seems like that's literally what's going on there too. There's so much frustration that... I don't know what it is, race mm. or uh, worry about the other, uh, ethnicity mm, or economic anxiety. Maybe that is part of it. But the, the result is this just kind of crazy, throw up your hands and embrace destruction. Mm. Good uh, luck to you all. Uh, <laughs> Emma, yeah. just, to, just to bring this back to the last week in UK politics, um, over the weekend there were moves. Uh, I know Dominic Raab went on TV saying that the government are going to try and figure out ways how to wriggle out of this new law uh, banning them from having a no-deal Brexit, which means that you know they could leave by the 31st of, of October. Can you t tell us a little bit about that? The bill received uh, royal assent today, so it is now a law. Mm -hmm. The Prime Minister has said that he won't do it, but he also has said that he won't break the law. So no one's really sure what that means. It, does it mean that he's going to resign and have someone else do it? Who knows? I mean, it's such a weird febrile time at the moment. Johnson has had from any, I mean, I'm hardly an unbiased source, but <laughs> Any unbiased look at Johnson's first week in Parliament is an absolute disaster. He's lost four votes. He lost 21 MPs. He lost his brother. <laughs> um, he couldn't get an election. 
his first PMQs, and nearly everyone wins their first PMQs. It's you know, it's, it's sort of Prime common Minister's what happens. Sorry, Prime Minister's Question Time, I apologise, which is the weekly ridiculous ritual where the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition go up against and have... The Leader of the Opposition has six questions and the Prime Minister answers them. Emma, can I just quickly say, you know what, I don't think it's ridiculous, you know. I think that a lot of light would be shone on the American political system in terms of holding up the head of its executive to that kind of grilling. I know it's somewhat theatre... But it does. It does. Get the theory gone. of it is much, much better than it is in practice. No, uh, that in practice, I agree what you with get. Me. So, I mean, I call it a ridiculous. Okay, the ritual itself may not be ridiculous, but the way it's currently being delivered is fairly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the horse race and the theatre and the who's up and who's down. There is a lot more he- uh, light than there is heat, um, or vice versa. I can never remember which way that uh, phrase yeah. is supposed yeah. to go. Heat than there yeah. is light. Um, and he basically was deemed to have lost that. No prime minister loses that in their first game. And, and Jeremy Corbyn um, he, is and seen as being uh, a bad, generally a weak yeah, performer. Yeah, a very yeah. Weak performer. Whereas he's had a very, very strong couple of performances in Parliament, um, and he's now on the front foot. Boris is on the back foot, and <laughs> Boris Johnson. You know what? Americans don't understand out, that, that 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 little uh, idiot. Oh, do you not say on the back no, foot? No, oh, they don't. It's cricket. Balance is that what it means? It's cricket. Oh, is it a yeah. cricket term? I didn't even know that. Basically, it means that Jeremy Corbyn is um, confident and striding forward, mm. whereas Boris Johnson has lost his confidence. He's been pushed backwards. Mm, yeah. So, uh, and Johnson is, uh, you know, there there is wide concern on the conservative backbenches that they've bought up. Do you not? Is that is that an American analogy? Do you know what that means? That they what was the phrase? They've been sold a pup. That they have. Been conned. <laughs> basically conned? what they were offered was not what they got there's a really interesting illuminating usually pups are good but I guess this is not a good pup I think it must be about pup tents which are uh, crappy tents okay. uh, <laughs> there's um, so Ken Clark it was the father of the house which means that he's the longest serving MP and it's just an honorific title you, you can't do anything it's just you know the longest serving MP is called the father or the mother of the house and he was one of these 21 Tory MPs that have been deselected and he uh, this week been speaking this weekend has been speaking very clearly uh, openly sorry is a better word about Boris Johnson and you know, and he says that when Boris Johnson was going for the leadership of the Tory party, he said he came to see me. And he says he stands for nothing. He believes in nothing. Other, Except Boris Johnson. Other than himself. And he's saying that. And He's like Trump that way. He's not as dumb, but it's yeah. a similar narcissism. Yeah. And, and I think what, what Boris Johnson utterly does have is a personal charm when he decides to turn it on. And a club ability mm. and an affability in a way that Trump doesn't have. But he and he's literate. Yeah, that's another thing. Exactly. Well, <laughs> he, 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 he I makes mean a lot of literature allusions, <laughs> but he, he can read, and he makes a lot of classical allusions. But my classicist friends, of which I have one or two, not many, tell me that it's actually quite a shallow um, knowledge. It's one of those things where he knows a little bit of everyone. Two one at Oxford. The idea of Donald Trump <laughs> being able to get through that exam. Can you get a six? <laughs> I, I, to, to come back to, to, to Emma's point, though, I think that the Tory, Tory MPs 
not talking about the members, but the Tory MPs have realised uh, very quickly that this is all bluff and bluster uh, with his uh, premiership so far. They had an inkling it might be, but the the gamble that they took was that the British public like Boris Johnson. I think there's a lot of evidence that a sizable uh, percentage of them still do. And potentially what Boris Johnson uh, will do in the forthcoming election is to say, I represent you, the people, against Parliament, Parliament. Uh, which yeah. which means the elites. You know, stuffy Parliament. I'm trying to deliver what you wanted, which was a Brexit, and they're trying to hamper me. And look at me. I My hair's a mess. I wear clothes that don't fit me deliberately. Um, I am one of you. And, well, I mean, and, that's the same as Trump. It's like a sort of yeah. poor man's rich man. It's like absolutely there couldn't oh, be yeah, a more elite yeah. member of society than Boris yeah. Johnson. There couldn't be a more, you know, symbol of mm. the gilded age elite in the United States inherited wealth than Donald Trump. Mm. And yet they can convince people yeah. that they're... Just like you. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Except not. <laughs> and, and, and there's another parallel between the US and the UK. So where you have Bannon, we have Dominic Cummings. As Dominic Cummings is his um, special advisor who uh, led the Leave campaign, which I know we mentioned in uh, the last two um, Mid-Atlantics. But um, Tory MPs have taken against him, and it's massively in, in the last week, saying that he's a bully, he's not even a Tory and mm. potentially he's driving this Conservative administration um, headlong into a wall at breakneck speed. Emma, uh, what else are we missing from, from last week? So we had um, Boris Johnson's brother resign, Amber Rudd resigned at, at the weekend. Why is her resignation significant? Does it, do we see potentially see any other Tory MPs letting go of the whip? And then it's going to have to be takeaways of the week, because I know you've got to get off. I do. Um, so... Amber Rudd is significant for the main reason that she chose to stay in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a, very much seen as a Remainer and she chose to back Boris even up into the proroguing, then decided to leave over the, the loss of the whip for the 21 MPs and she just felt that the Tory party was not what she thought it should be. She has gone independent but has said she will stand again but not in her current constituency. Um, there are possibly just silly uh, rumours that she might run against Boris and his constituency. And his constituency, Corey, is a marginal. Mm. Uh, and it would be actually perfectly possible within the British system for the Conservatives to win the most seats but lose the guy who runs the... Uh, <laughs> mm. run, who, who is their leader. Amazing. Um, which would... I mean, that would be the constitutional moment to cap all well, the constitutional moments. Why would they not just moments. move him up the list to somewhere safe? Couldn't they do that? Uh, they could do that, but they'd have to have someone else stand down. No, um, and that would have to be the individual decision. No, of, I mean, what they do is ennoble somebody and make them a lord so they can go off and become a no, lord so he can take their seat. Um, that is almost certainly what would happen. The party doesn't if, control that. It really would be up to the person who has the seat. Uh, yeah. Huh. I mean, they could deselect them, but... Mm. That would be drastic. Yeah, that's like yeah. No, what they, well, they'll do it. They'll do carrot rather than stick on that one. They'll <laughs> they'll offer them a lordship. Uh, yeah, um, it's the local party that have the whip hand. I saw a gen- documentary about the House about of Lords, and somebody said the fillet steak was very good there. So maybe that one. Oh, the House of Lords <laughs> dining room is so much better than the House of Commons dining room. It is the class system in action. I'm telling you. <laughs> 
That's why Amber Rudd is significant. Jacob Rees-Mogg annoyed everybody this week and basically put a millstone around the necks of the Conservative Party. Does he really have some health condition that made him lay down like that? No, it's bollocks. (laughs) Boy, that image will haunt the Conservative Party forever. I mean, I wrote an article for The Independent, which will be my takeaway of the week, is you should read my article Uh. on The Independent because it did great business. Um, And it's about the fact that exactly that, that image is going Mm. to exemplify the Tories and, you know, it will be very usable by anyone who wants to say anything to the Tories about how they have no respect for democracy, how they have no respect, you know, um, uh, how they're snobby and out of touch. And even if you want to do the puns, (laughs) lying in Parliament. Right. (laughs) The idea that this is an anti-elite party and you have this man who, I mean... Mm. So he did that, which was uh, gave Labour the image that will launch a thousand leaflets. Mm. Then on the other hand, in Parliament, he accused a doctor who had run rung into a phone in he was on saying that he had helped contribute to setting out what needed to be done for no deal and he knew that it hadn't been done mm. and that he was concerned about this jacob Rees-Mogg then went into parliament and compared that doctor to andrew wakefield mm. now for those listeners who don't know who andrew wakefield is he is the piece of scum who was struck off by the British Medical Council for telling lies about a link between autism and vaccines Mm. that has killed many, many children. Mm -hmm. So for him to go into Parliament and make that... uh, And he could only do it in Parliament because he was covered by parliamentary privilege. So he couldn't be sued. Interesting. Uh, And he's had to apologise. He's been absolutely forced to apologise. But it was a disgusting Mm behaviour. And I think of all the terrible things that happened this week, that may have been the worst. Mm. And just the last thing which I'll say about last week... there, uh, Boris Johnson went to Wakefield and this was the day after he lost his vote in Parliament and he thought there'd be an election. Uh, the election date would have been set so already ha- he had this speech to deliver up in Wakefield and the optics of it were really weird from a British perspective. You see this all the time in US politics. So you'll have like Donald Trump or some prospective presidential candidate stood with a phalanx of police officers or firemen or just whatever, some some symbol of, uh, you know, good... Amer- the state. Yeah, the state and good American citizenry behind them. That thing doesn't happen in the UK. And number one, Boris Johnson's speech was rambling. Number two, he turned up late. And uh, his office expressly said this is not going to be electioneering and we will not line up these these police officers behind Boris Johnson which is exactly what they did and of course his police officers uh, on on the spot they just do what they're told they weren't to know that this was not supposed to happen um mm. the the officers were had been waiting out on this bright hot sunny day for an hour before Johnson turned up one of them literally fa- well fainted had to go and sit down and he had to stop the speech because she obviously said something and uh and he turned around to look at her but the whole this just doesn't fly in british politics he's co-opting the police uh to be an organ of the conservative party and specifically mm. his wing of the conservative party to deliver uh, an, an electioneering speech so the chief constable of the West Yorkshire Police has said that this is a desperate kind of act and that had a lot of kickback. And specifically of this show is the compare and contrast between our two countries. You couldn't have a greater difference. This happens all the time 
in the United States. But, but in Britain, we're much more sensitive to the services being used as a political backdrop and somewhat of a pawn. On that note, um, I think it's time to go to takeaways of the week. Suffice to say that we're going to have another combustible week in British politics. And maybe by the time we get round to doing another Mid-Atlantic, something of note will have happened in American politics that we'll, uh, we'll yeah. see, <laughs> we'll actually can report on. But right here and Besides now, our president redrawing a weather map? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you get more significant than that. Oh, my God. And co-opting the weather service to tell oh us that actually God. his lie is true. I think that yeah, and maybe it was a symbol, but it was frightening. He, um, his intellectual mental decline. Or your vice president cross, crisscrossing Ireland simply so he can stay in a Trump hotel. You know, one, one thing that I will say is great about our Constitution is the emoluments clause. It says you're not supposed to profit from office. Mm. And this person seems to have read it wrong. <laughs> he thinks <laughs> it said that that's something he should do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But what we should do right now is go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. Now, it's, it's that time where we try and put politics uh, to one side and uh, we, 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 we look out to the heavens, to the stars, and we see the beauty in the world and the beauty that is within humanity and within all of us. Normally, when I say this, that's lost on you, Corey, Brett Schneider, and then you <laughs> always turn it back to politics. But I know no, you're not, not going to let time. me down this way. Oh, not cool. last time. All right, so, I'm cool. ready. All right, Corey, over to you. You're ready. Go. I've been talking about the golden age of television in these moments, and we have another one. Do you? I don't know if you get it yet, but you will soon if you don't in the UK. Certainly we get it here. That's assuming that Brexit allows you to still have televisions. <laughs> I hope that it does. 
Um, they take my Emmerdale for my yeah. cold dead hands. <laughs> it's called uh, Succession. It's oh. about a uh, Rupert Murdoch-like family, mm-hmm. uh, and he's uh, the Murdoch figure is uh, ailing, and it's about who's going to take over. It is brilliantly done. And in the, in the last episode, um, there is a, a New York Times-like doppelganger family, and the two of them are threatening a merger. Let's hope that uh, art doesn't uh, uh, that life doesn't imitate art. That would be a bad thing for yeah. the world. <laughs> well, um, I have, I've got it primed to watch. Uh, no pun yeah, intended. Me too. Is, is it actually on Amazon? I can't remember what, what it's actually on. Yeah, yeah. I've got Amazon. it on my yeah, Prime so, that, so I will, I will watch it when I get back. That is, a, that is a great pun of mine, and I have it primed to watch. Uh, <laughs> well done, me. Uh, but Brian Cox is a good Brit. A uh, good British actor who made his name in the 1960s, being this kind of enfant terrible of, of British, uh, the British acting world, is, uh, the, is I can call him the matriarch, the patriarch. There. Yeah. So um, brilliant. Yeah. Every every halfway decent American uh, show needs a good Brit as an actor to anchor it and to give it depth and gravitas. So. And it's usually Dominic. <laughs> exactly. No, it's normally Dominic West. You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this time it's Brian Cox, and um, it's great to see him uh, leading such a, a great cast. Um, over to you, Emma. Uh, well, I say, I'm afraid I am going to bring it back to politics because I've oh. had a week where there hasn't been Emma, time to do anything Emma, else. Emma. So I do <laughs> want, and I never blow my own trumpet on here, but That's I do job, feel that normally, people should read yeah. my. <laughs> independent article on Jacob Rees-Mogg because it will tell you a little bit about where British politics is Mm. now um, and why imagery is so important in politics. So it was a fun article to write and hopefully a fun one to read as well. Mm. And it's short. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There is instinctively people that look and sound like Jacob Rees-Mogg. I must admit, I go, oh, I don't think I like you. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I've got a chip on both shoulders, mate. (laughs) Well, because the thing is, you, you don't want to completely and utterly prejudge, but he's so affected that yeah. I don't quite understand how he's been given the pass that he has. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is an extreme right-wing Tory MP, Conservative MP, who dresses like it's still the 1930s, <laughs> um, slicked back hair, uh, on a round glasses and has a speech pattern which is extinct even the royal family don't sound completely yeah the royal family do not sound like jacob rees-mogg and he absolutely does look like dennis king of the softies who was a character in uh oh 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 walter king of the softies dennis was the menace dennis of the menace sorry of course it's walter (laughs) king of the softies sorry and so i know you guys have your dennis the menace over here but we have the real Dennis the Menace, who's a cartoon character, and his nemesis uh, was Walter King of the Softies, and he looks exactly like Jacob Rees-Mogg. The, the t- he's, he's Walter the Softie dressed up as Lord Snooty. Yes. If you really want to get yes. deep into your Beano well, analogies, no, 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 you, you couldn't be more <laughs> right. You couldn't be more right. And I just don't quite understand how, in this day and age, he's been able to kind of get away with it. I believe, and you've written the article, but I believe it's in part because. As well as sounding like a 1930s upper-class twit, he uses language very well. He sounds moderate before you actually then look at actually what he's saying. He always what sounds, he's saying, yeah. yeah. And 
and also he's very funny. He's a very funny guy. He's 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 quick witted, and he does have his classical education down pat. You know, he has a deeper understanding of his Cicero's and uh, his Aristotle's and democracies uh, in a way that uh, maybe Boris Johnson doesn't quite. But I, I I think history will be incredibly fair to Jacob Rees-Mogg in that it will be unkind to him. Yeah. You know, he's <laughs> somewhat of a great opportunist. Though so I saw a great interview. Bear in mind, again, this person has the affect of being posher than the royal family. I, I don't quite understand, but I just hope that, as I said, history is fair to Jacob Rees-Mogg and shows him up for being a charlatan, opportunistic, right-wing egotist that actually that, it, that he is. Though, however, I believe he's a decent parliamentarian and has an idea and an understanding of the history of, par- of Parliament. We thought he was, but now he's shown absolute contempt for Parliament. Yeah, by literally sleeping on the job. By literally, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so my takeaway... It's a bit of a funny one, really. I don't know if he actually listens to this show, but a fellow podcaster of mine came out on Facebook and he is married to a woman and he put a post on Facebook saying, I'm in Germany with my longtime friend. We've got it sorted. We love each other. I'm just telling the whole world through Facebook. And the messages of support were just like, you know, hundreds you know good for you good for you wow good for you so amazing there he was hugging his um ex-best friend now now lover and i just said to myself boy oh boy i don't think that i'm an old fart but in my lifetime alone um the changing attitudes to coming out is 180 still people (coughs) struggle uh, men and women struggle to come out. But there's kind of evidence that attitudes are completely changing, not, uh, have changed, uh, you know, not, not are changing, have changed. Uh. My daughter in London uh, went to a school called QPCS. So it's in fairly central London. You know, it's, a, it's Guardian Media Land, admittedly. But there's this one, one student who... And I say this lightly because I don't have a, an anti-gay bone in my body, but it was as camp as a row of tents. And from the age of 13, he came out and he was always in all of the, and he was, he was always in all of the school plays, um, doing the lead, singing and dancing. And he was utterly brilliant. In the 1980s, when I was at school, you couldn't be 13 and come out. 14, 15, 16, 17 or 18. Just, it would be unthinkable just when I was at school. 30, 30 years ago to come out and I just say we still have a way to go to level the, the playing field for our gay and lesbian brethren and, and sisters and stuff but what a, what a world we're living in where you can just announce on <laughs> Facebook you're gay and admittedly this is to your wider friend group he, he, he didn't put this out on Twitter but still to be able to do it to want to do it and people just go yeah that's great let's move on you know, it just yeah, shows yeah. you uh, what great strides we've actually made. We still have a way to go, don't get me wrong. And then just to end up on this, flying back from Toronto into San Francisco Airport, there's a massive mural to Harvey Milk. 
you know, the first mm. out Absolutely. gay politician in the United States, mayor of San Francisco in the 1970s. And when I say mural, it, it, it like loads of pictures. This thing was like a hundred foot long in <laughs> the airport. And I says, you know what? I'm home. I'm home. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think it's so great that things are just so much more accepting now. Um, and we're so much more confident that, you know, people are who they are and they love who they love. On, on a slight side, note, I hope his wife's all right. Um, well, I, I, I must presumably admit, those conversations happen first. Well, I must admit, right, when I saw it, I'm I, the food I was chewing in my mouth didn't literally fall out because I, I just presumed he was, a, you know, a, in a happy heterosexual uh, marriage. But let, let's hope that those conversations... And, and I'm sure he was in a loving relationship because, mm-hmm. you know, that, it, it's, it's never that simple. As I say, I hope that all parties are happy and, and, and content and that's what matters. You know, mm. life's too short. But it is the one issue that gives you hope. I mean, it's true civil rights progress and, you know, a lot of the things we'd like to see across the board. Mm-hmm. But at least there's one issue that we can feel confident about. Yeah, uh, I think that's a nice on. note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> and, well done, Royfield. Oh, th- thank you, thank you. If I was smart, I would have even weaved in the T-shock of, um, of Ireland huh? being openly gay and having Mike Pence meet him and, and his partner Mike Pence doesn't exactly have the best history when it comes to tolerance and stuff so that was well done the Irish for that Corey Brett Schneider I'm, I'm presuming you're going to tell me now that people can not only follow you on Twitter but also buy one of your books sir what do you think <laughs> <laughs> I think you're saying it doing Better to come from you than me. Oh, uh, well, we, I can't remember the name of the book, and, and I'll probably oh. mangle the title. The Oath in the Office. Oh, is that it? Oh, okay. <laughs> I've had it drilled into me. Oh, my God. It's now out in the UK. Oh. The last couple there of weeks. You go. It's brand new in paperback. And uh, the subtitle is A Guide to the Constitution. For future presidents, this one is a lost cause, so let's, let's hope for a new one. Hey, you know what we'll have to do? I, do, I just thought of this. Um, when we do, when I do the next intelligence speech in New York, because I know, um, Emma, you will, be, you will be there, we'll have to do I a will. mid-Atlantic... I've already booked my Airbnb. Yay! Yeah. We'll have to I'm do... Gonna, I'm coming over for long enough. I'm going to be there on the 4th of July. How amazing wow. is that going to wow. be? Awesome. You'll love it. Well, we, we, we should definitely hang out. I'll, I'll make sure that... Um, totally. We should Your authority, do, here we yeah. come. <laughs> we'll actually do a mid-Atlantic live in front of a studio audience. Oh, fun. Oh, that'd be yeah, good. That'd absolutely. Be really good. That'd be amazing. Yeah, that'd it's be really a nice good. conference. Yeah. Very nice. Oh, well, listen, I look you, forward to that. You, you were a total star, Corey, coming in. You, you were very chilled and, and, and relaxed and just, uh, yeah, it was, it was it a very good session. It says transmitter on my, on my little <laughs> screen here. Yeah, but mine says intelligent presenter and I'm neither. I saw that. I was like, hmm. Emma, what have you been up to recently? What do you want to tell the listeners about? about well i mean apart from plugging my independent article again uh i will have a series of reviews coming out in the next week of a ukrainian theater festival uh, yeah. that i'm visiting in poland so How cool. that will be fun mm. uh and that's in poznan in poznan yes i which to which i'm flying tomorrow morning so i really need to get off this call so i can pack right yeah. okay <laughs> and of course folks uh we are mid-atlantic show i'm not going to tell you what our twitter handle is because I, I never bloody use it but what you can do can do can do and um, the next month or so i'm going to be changing the format a little uh, go on to midatlanticshow.com and hit the red tab on the right which says speak 
uh, pipe you can you can basically hit a voice note and you'll get yourself on the show so if you agree with anything wildly or more, more interestingly if you disagree with some of the stuff that Emma said she said a lot of contentious things this week you know a lot of you know why don't you send us a voice note and we'll include it at the start of next ne- on the next show and Emma will have the right of reply so we'll set up a little bit of bring a dialogue between yeah. you the listener <laughs> that one you do know in America <laughs> yeah, no, bring it on and sure. Emma our most spunky of pundits so that's been us <laughs> mid-atlantic show i tell you what you can do also go on to um itunes go write us a review if you think we're rubbish say so if you think we're halfway <laughs> decent say that also but let's have some feedback that's been mid-atlantic uh and it's all about us and uk politics compared to contrasted but i think we we're all agreed that nothing happened in america in the last week worth reporting it's <laughs> all about britain and it's constitutional Which we could forget what happened in the united states political <laughs> meltdown we'll see you all again soon bye-bye A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.